0: Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Denver on April 9, 2010. The recording features Amaranth Borsik, Mira Rosenthal, Laura Glenham, Gabriella Howergy, and Kate Durbin. Now you will hear Amaranth Borsik provide introductions.
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to collaboration as translation, translation as collaboration. Thank you for being here. Um, We hope that we're going to be showing you some interesting work today that presses on the boundaries between these two terms. My name is Amarantha Borsak. I'm the panel organizer, and the people on this panel were brought together by Various friendships and confluences, which I think speaks to the notion of collaboration and how that is happening in poetry today So I'm going to give brief introductions of each of the presenters and we have two teams that are presenting together Um, Gabriella Haurugi and I will present together and then Kate Durbin and I but so I'll give author bios um, Between the presenters they'll each give a little bit of a craft talk about their work show some work And then at the end we'll have some time for Q&A about it. Our first presenter is Mira Rosenthal She's the translator of The Forgotten Keys by Polish poet Tomasz Rosicki, and she's the founding editor of Lyric Poetry Review. She's received grants from the National Endowment for the Arts and uh, the Penn America Center and the Fulbright Commission, as well as fellowships for the McDowell Col- Colony, Vermont Studio Center, Banff Center, and elsewhere. Her own poetry has appeared widely in journals including Plowshares, American Poetry Review, Slate, West Branch and Notre Dame Review. One of Rosicki's poems and uh, Mira's commentary on it also just received Three Quark Daily's Top Quark Award um, and was judged by Robert Pinsky, so that's wonderful news. And uh, Mira has an MFA from the University of Houston and she's currently completing her PhD in comparative literature at Indiana University. Please welcome Mira
2: Rosenthal. Thank you, Amaranth. Um, it's a lot of fun to be here on a panel of people who have been brought together from various uh, realms, and also to be on a panel where I feel like each of our projects is very different. But I, I think that all of them will point to um, the fact that translation in its various forms is always an interpretive endeavor. Um, in other words, I do not believe that there is any idea, there's, there's no such thing as a literal translation. So I'll put that out there at the beginning. Um, I want to uh, go ahead and just uh, give you a brief introduction to my work as a translator, and then just touch on a couple points of how I see it as a collaborative practice. Um, my aim in, in talking about this is to answer one of the questions that we've put before ourselves as a panel, and that question is, Is translation always necessarily collaborative? And my answer will be yes. But before I get into my reasoning with that, I'd like to start by way of introduction, paraphrasing something that uh, the wonderful translator of Russian uh, poetry and literature, Daniel Weisbord, um, had to say about the translator's role today. The more flexible attitude to language at this time, Weisport points out, has led to translators being more self-aware in distinguishing between different methods. The translator today often finds him or herself to be at once reader, writer, and critic and as such seeks to systematize flexibility and mirror the creative process itself. And I'd like to just emphasize or underscore the idea that the translator is necessarily at once reader, writer, and critic. So following this idea, let me start by just telling you briefly about my background as a translator, which begins as my experiences as a reader and a writer. I didn't set out to become a translator, And I don't see myself as having any inherent linguistic ability with languages. Um, And I certainly wasn't looking to make a lot of money. But nevertheless, I found myself in Krakow one summer as part of a seminar that my MFA program was running. And in my mind, I thought if they were going to pay for me to get over there, I might as well stay as long as I could. And if I was staying for several months, I might as well start trying to learn a little Polish. And you know, how life leads in that way. So eventually I found myself struggling along trying to learn uh, a bit of Polish in order, ultimately, when I started, it was just to read um, poets who I had been reading and reading in English translation for many years to be able to perhaps one day read them in the original. Later, when I was living in Poland as a Fulbright fellow, I came across the work of Tomasz Rużycki, and I um, was drawn to his work, uh, but but also very aware that it did not exist at that point in English translation. Um, He's a contemporary poet a few years older than myself, um, and he's also, I think, one of the most accomplished younger poets in Poland, Uh, certainly someone who I see as a very worthy successor to an amazing literary tradition. I was attracted to his distinctive personal poetic voice that combines highly concrete imagery with, co- with evocative re- references to his historical legacy of his family and his time. And for Ruzitsky, this really means um, a history of his family and the, the dislocation that his family experienced after wo- World War II. They had been living in what is now Ukraine and were... Um, forcibly migrated to the western part of what is now Poland when the border shifted after the war. And he really uh, explores this, this sense of dislocation in his work. I decided, or rather I should say, the writer in me decided to try my hand at translating a few of the poems uh, from the five collections he had published to to date. And that eventually led to publication, his first English language publication, a selection of his work that came out with Zephyr Press in 2007. Um, and that was his English language debut, and I, one of the editors from Zephyr uh, just showed up, and I think she brought a couple of the the books along with her if you 'd like to take a look afterwards so i 'm now working on translating his most recent his sixth uh, volume of poems called colonies uh, and this this volume definitely continues his thematic preoccupation with displacement. The book is made up of seventy seven deformed sonnets, and I say deformed sonnets because that's the way that that critics have been talking about this work. And each of the sonnets has a title that brings to mind 19th century travel narratives. Through this sonnet series, Ruzitsky explores the magic of childhood adventure stories and lore of tales from exotic locales uh, or overseas colonies. But all of this also uh, throughout the book suggests an inner journey as well. And this is explored through a number of poems that are, that are um, s- spaced throughout the book that all begin with the leading first line, When I began to write, I didn't yet know. Dot, dot, dot. So in this way, the book also becomes a meditation on the nature of writing itself, which uh, we could think of writing as a form of dislocation um, and uh, he, I think the, the, the nature of writing, the, the sense that he ultimately comes up with, is that it's a kind of loss of childhood um, and a kind of ailment or invasion of the body. Those are the metaphors that he's playing around with here. And it is only the body in the end that knows the truth. So I'd like to read one of the sonnets to give you a sense of Rujitsky's voice and the project. The Governor's Residence. When I began to write, I didn't know what I was really choosing and how much they'd pay, that I'd become so quickly rich that anything I'd want could soon be mine, the women and the cities of my dreams, that I would travel when and where I want, in winter or in summer, go where I happen to point to on the map without a suitcase straight from bed, without my pants. I'd settle in a fishing hut in Greece, and someone would bring wine and olives daily. And, and day by day, my fortune would increase. And daily, I'd stuck up on chocolate butter that would sit there, for I would feel no hunger. So I hope you could hear in, in my translation that I followed an iambic pentameter in the sonnet in English and also tried to enhance certain rhymes um, that come out in the English. And here I'd like to turn to talking about the way in which I collaborate with Rujitsky in these translations. Um, I'm lucky that our collaboration is not a horror story as it so often is for a translator working directly with a writer who oftentimes thinks that they understand some English and, and the author would, might want to make changes in the English translation, but they don't quite get the nuances there. Rudzinski doesn't know any English, um, which is perhaps the way our, our collaboration works so well. You might ask, so how then do we collaborate on the English translations? Initially, our collaboration was coming up with a strategy of how to approach the translation of the book. As you understand, it's a book of sonnets, so there's a formal consideration there. And I tried a couple, a handful of translations in a free verse form. Um, and after sitting with those, we both decided that to do justice to the music in the Polish, that I should also follow a more formal constraint in the English, which meant an iambic pentameter to, um, to be an equivalent to the 13-syllable line, which is the sonnet in Polish. Um, but I'm lucky in that Rudzicki's sonnets are deformed, which means that he doesn't always adhere to the strict form in Polish, and, he, and rhyme kind of happens here and there rather than all the time, every time that it should be there. Um, so I was able to have that kind of flexibility in the English as well. And I've really, especially with the rhyme, it's a lot of fun to let it more, arise more organically and kind of tease it out as it comes up in the English. Our collaboration also means discussing each translation in depth, and this happens after I've worked up what I feel is a pretty solid translation in the English, which means I've gone through many drafts of it already. And then I send it to Ruzitsky. He, he understands a little English, he's slowly learning more, and and uh, so he'll look at it. He also speaks French, so he can kind of get a little bit of, the, of, of it there. And I, but I more importantly, I send him a list of all of the most significant changes um, and decisions that I've made um, and, and so that we can discuss those dishes, decisions. Um, sometimes um, these decisions might include adding an adjective or taking out a whole phrase, Um, or uh, completely changing a a metaphor that he's using in a poem. So I suppose you could say that uh, at times we're somewhat rewriting or revising his poems in the English translations. So to give you a brief example, uh, this is from a poem called Tavern at the Harbor, and it, it ends with a metaphor Um, that's a more direct translation would be something like there's a needle stuck above my heart. And when I was translating partly for the metrical requirements that I needed and also to, I felt like the metaphor wasn't that impactful in English so I changed it to there's a hook lodged near my heart. And the poem also has some imagery of, it's called Tavern at the Harbor, so there's, there's boats and fishing and all of that going on. So I felt the hook was justified, and Rudzitsky also agreed. So small change, but metaphorically, I think, more significant. But for me, our collaboration is even more exciting when uh, our dialogue results in a a new reading or or an additional interpretation to a line or a moment in a poem that I didn't even see initially as a reader and a translator. Um, And so for an example with this, um, there's a poem in the collection called Drifting. And I wanna read just the first few lines in Polish so you can hear a little bit of the original language and then I'll talk about our dialogue with the translation. Nocne Polska, papieros w So my initial translation of the first two lines was, "Night trains Poland, a hand-rolled cigarette slowly starts to glow from out of the ragged darkness." And uh, when I was working uh, with the meter, I decided to get rid of the additional information that this was a hand-rolled cigarette. It didn't seem important to me in the translation. So I had a cigarette slowly starts to glow from out of the ragged darkness. And at first, Rujitsky emailed back, sounds fine. Uh, But then a couple days later, I got another email that said, actually, you know, with that translation, we lose this whole other reading of the line. And which results from the fact I think I forgot to mention this uh, before that that Polish as a very inf- inflected language has a lot more flexibility with word order than English does, so there can be uh, that flexibility can allow for multiple readings that are harder to get in in English and so the reading that that I had readed out in the translation uh, was that this this cigarette was necessarily hand-rolled because one reading would be it was hand-rolled from the ragged darkness out of the ragged darkness. And so based on that, I revised the line to a cigarette hand-rolled from ragged darkness slowly starts to glow. Might seem like minor changes, but to get those nuances in the translation, these are the kind of things that we collaborate on. so I want to just keep to my time so that we have enough time for everyone. But there, was, there is one other aspect that I see my work in translating Rudzinski's poetry as collaborative, um, and uh, I think that this is one way in which all translation is kind of a collaboration. So even for those who aren't collaborating uh, with the author directly, um, they... Uh, are still collaborating in terms of that third way in which a translator works and that is, as Daniel Weisport pointed out, and that is the translator as a critic. Criticism in the realm of translation includes not only scholarly articles but about the translated author, but also choices in terms of how to present that author uh, to the target literary culture. A translator makes critical choices when he or she selects the poet to translate, selects which poems to include, and what paratext to present, so introductions, notes, jacket copy, blurbs, etc., this critical apparatus collaborates with or is a kind of dialogue with all the translations of that author that might have come before this one, but also a kind of dialogue with the image of that literature as it exists in translation. So I'm thinking here first, for example, of translations of a very canonical author that might have appeared numerous times, Dante for example. Um, so the critical apparatus of a new translation needs to argue for why this new translation is important. So, But since Rudzicki's work hadn't yet appeared in English, I wasn't faced with that particular challenge, um, but I was faced with a particular um, image of Polish poetry as it exists in English translation. And for anyone who's familiar with Polish poetry in translation, it, it does... Um, Enjoy uh, some some fame in in the U.S. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of Czesław Miłosz's uh, influential th- anthology called Postwar Polish Poetry, which came out I think in 1965 and is still in print and still talked about widely. Um, but also. Uh, the story of Polish po- poetry as it's being told today, which includes names like Wysława Zimborska, Adam Zagiewski, and of course Miłosz himself, names that you know, a large number of Americans will be familiar with. But certainly there are poets in Poland who are not writing in that tradition at all. But Rużycki does fit in that story that we in the, in the West also tell about Polish poetry. Um, but he challenges our expectations to some degree of what we expect from a Polish poet. And so I was very aware of all of this when I was making my selection and even choosing to present an unknown Polish poet in translation. Um, So my my challenge in translating his work was to figure out how to situate him in relation to this canon of Polish poetry um, and how to, in other words, collaborate with and extend the work of those translators who had come before me. I chose to do this with a critical introduction uh, to his work, although it's, it's not an academic introduction, um, and also a foreword that Adam Zagajewski wrote. So in that way, um, he is very much situated in, in our understanding of Polish literature. I don't have uh, more time, really, to go into that second way in which I see translation as collaboration, but if anyone wants to talk about it during the Q&A, uh, that would be great. So, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Mira.
2: The next presenter is
1: Laura Glennum. She's the author of two poetry books The Hounds of No and Maximum Gaga, both from Action Books. She's the co-editor with Ariel Greenberg of Gerlesk, an anthology of women's poetry and visual art from Saturnalia Books. Her translations of Czech poetry have received an NEA translation fellowship, and she's currently collaborating with sound and visual artists on a multimedia installation piece. Laura Glennum.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I am actually not going to talk about my translations of Czech poetry, Um, just something I do a good deal of the time, I would like to present for you all um, a different project in which I collaborated with my husband, who is a digital media artist. Um, and it's uh, part of a larger multimedia installation that has sculptural components. We installed it at um, Hallwalls Contemporary Gallery in Buffalo this fall. We'll be installing it again, um, um, actually later this month. Um, and uh, it's a text-based video that, is, um, that draws heavily on the second half of my book, Maximum Gaga. Uh, and I think the way to approach it is simply to let you see it and field questions later. Um, I'm in the awkward position of being the person who is translated, actually. right? My husband is the one who should rightfully be here and answering um, questions about the process of translating my work into video format. Um, but since I live with him, I can probably, I can probably field some of those questions, too.
1: I'll take your questions later. Um, the next collaboration is my, myself with Gabriela Haurgi. Gabriela Haurgi is the author of Controlled Decay from Akashic Books Black Oat Press. She holds an MFA from UC Riverside and an MA from UC Irvine. Her writing has been published in journals and anthologies in the US, Mexico and Europe. She's a PhD candidate in comparative literature at USC and a member of the Surplus Publishing Collective in Mexico. And uh, her books are also available, like all of our presenters at the book fair across the street. Um, I'm Amaranth Forsik, and uh, I am also a PhD candidate at the University of Southern California in creative writing and literature. Um, my work has recently appeared in Columbia Poetry Review, Colorado Review, and Denver Quarterly. My chapbook, Tonal Saw, was just published by The Song Cave. Um, and uh, I live in Los Angeles where I co curate The Loudest Voice, a reading series that pairs creative writers from USC with writers from the greater LA area. So we're going to be presenting from our collaborative translations of Paul Brafort. Gabby?
3: Sure. Yeah. you do that? Maybe I'll talk a little bit about that. So while she opens our translations, I'll give you a quick background. Um, uh, Poet Paul Braford is a member of the Potential Literature Workshop, which in French is called OUVOIR de Littérature Potentielle, so Ulipo. Um, and the book uh, My Hypertrope's Twenty-One Minus One Programmatic Poems uh, was published in 1979, um, and it's not available in the States, and neither is any of his work uh, available in the U.S. or in English, for that matter. Um, okay. Well. Let's... Okay.
1: So so the work, the, the hypertropes, were a series of poems that Brathwaite wrote um, in dedication to the various members of the Ulipo in the year in which he wrote them, which was 1979. Each poem is dedicated to a different member of the Ulipo and adopts different constraints that the Ouvoir used in their work. In many cases, the constraint references the particular poet to whom the work is dedicated. And in reading the work, we were both kind of overwhelmed with the amount of extra literary references in each poem and the richness of the constraint and wordplay because Brefort is a total punster um, and figuring out a way to work all of that into a direct translation was complicated uh, the diagram that you see is Brafford's map of how his poems
3: connect one to the next because uh, his whole uh, structure for ordering the book is based on the Fibonacci sequence which you know, for those of you who don't remember, um, it's one, one, two, three. So one number adds to the next number, and then that creates the following number in the sequence. So one, one, two, three, five, eight, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, so that's how he programmed, you know, poem number one would then po- uh, program with poem number two lines that would be present in poem number three, and so on and so forth. Until he ended up with the twenty poems dedicated to the then twenty members of the Ulipo. Um, and for our translations, so as you can imagine, he's you know has so many homophones and so many constraints, including sonnets, and um, you know we'll talk about them in a second. Um, we decided to do a straightforward, in quotation marks, I would say translation from the French into the English, and then with everything that was left over, because there was much left over, or much that couldn't be worked in, or much that we could have uh, discussed in the translation, we decided to do our transversions.
1: Right, so the transversion is this kind of third poem that runs alongside the first two, Um, in some cases providing material, like if there is a homophonic pun, that if I were to translate it into English, you would lose the homophony. We then decided, okay, so in the, in the third poem, we'll do that, but in English, so that a reader gets a sense of what are the techniques that are being used. And I think the best way maybe to explain it is to show you one. <clears throat> so this is the 11th poem in the, in the sequence, as you can see.
3: So I'll read it in French first. Um. Onze, Grosse org ou les préfixes. And it's dedicated to latis. Va, ne tique pas trop sur la tique au patro. la coquette aux émaux. Sois hyper pour l'homo, pour Nîmes que hante au, l'intrigue au lamentau. Soufflante et paro, N qui se part au, je subtil des si, non. Mais pleure, va si nos elfes, nos pâtres nus composent un patron, Nîmes.
1: 11. Big Organs or the Fixed priests. For lati. Come, do not scorn so the attic of patros, the coquettes' glows. Be hyper for omo, for neem that haunts, oh, the intrigue's pathos, snorting, grunt, roar, hatred that self-adorns, with the subtle games of yeas and no's. But do cry if our elves, our
3: pastoral nudes, compose a patronym. And our transversion. Pop organs clean, or piñatari's neads, for A. Warhol. Do you want to start? Sure. Ajax surfs at dawn, while Ariel cheers on the aquafresh tide. Palm and olive gain pride and joy, small and mighty the country save. Lux snuggles under the cascade, with scrubbing bubbles whisked, into downy crests by the Irish spring. All armed and hammered, Mr. Clean doves a fairy bounce over the ivory snow and shouts, Fabuloso! Olé!
1: So, as you can see, uh, the transversion is not at all a direct translation of the original poem. Um, And what we were trying to work in were the, the reference in the second stanza to Omo, which is a laundry soap. There's a really funny commercial. It was very popular in Brazil. You can you can watch on YouTube about Omo soap. And we when we caught this reference, we thought we would want to work that in. And in addition, the the if you want to talk about the um,
3: lati, right. So lati the the member of the ulipo who he dedicated uh, this to was the the one who came up with this drawing. He it, what that says is ulipo um so hence the patronym right right it's their logo so to speak and so then we were you know with the soap and the logo we just decided to go for you know
1: logos it turns out that there's this kind of buried poem within this poem that's about naming and creating the patronym the logo for who you are as a writer and we've got as contemporary writers, a different set of references than Brafford had as a French male writer in 1979. We've got our own world of references, so we dedicate our poem to Andy Warhol, kind of the king of the logo.
3: And also our subtitle, all of, our, uh, all of his works have subtitles, and so our subtitle includes Piñatari, uh, which is a, a pun on Piñatari, Decio Piñatari, the Brazilian concrete poet who did the famous poem Beba Coca-Cola. So you know that was another poem that included more uh, sort of puns uh, and games with uh, with language and with logos, logos, yes, yeah. brands. So that so that is
1: how our translation becomes a transversion, and the process is different for every poem. Uh, we had to come up with different games to play with ourselves, different ways to get inspired by the original to create something new that spoke to our own cultural references as poets in the
3: 21st century. So we'll read another one. Douze. Modèle ou la bande à And this is dedicated to one of the very founders of Ulipo, François Le Lyonnais. Pour un mot doux des mains, un mot pour un modèle, pour un signe noir pour douze pieds de Petrarch, deux tercets, trois syntagmes font cinq asphodels et bercent les pierrots qui vont à Luna Park. Il chante la chanson qui fit mourir Adèle et scante des alinéas pour le hiérarque. Nos galaxies déjà se feront la valise comme les astérix, comme les taxis. On dira désormais cinq lettres à Élise qui va chez Gallimard mourir d'anorexie. Elle rit du radeau de Ramuse, ivre à Pise. Triste trope, Léonard, c'est Fibonacci. Twelve. Models or Petrovitch's
1: band for François Le Lyonnais. For a sweet word from Emma, a word for model, for a black sign for a dozen feet of Petrarch, two tercits, three syntagmas, make five aspidels and cradle the Pierrot's who go to Luna Park. They execute the song that executed Adele and scan the Alineas for the hierarch. Our galaxies have already packed their valise, akin to Asterix, similar to taxis. They say from this time forth, five letters to Elise who dies at Gallimard's of anorexia, she laughs at Ramuz's raft, Tipsy in Pisa. Tragic tropes.
3: Leonardo is Fibonacci. And our transversion number 12. Models or Petrovich's band. Oh, dandelion. Oh, sorry. A dandelion or amphibulated bestiary. So many pages. And this is dedicated to the poet Leon Felipe. Leo the lion of standward leopards and known as wild ferus, they too are wonder wherever this. The name lion has into root, but translated that.
1: The litters of creatures, threes, curly plain as fear, his first feature that to mountains pursued and that, our savior, i.e. spiritual, the rod, sun, places, race, which had perished of that concealed, dared themselves
3: to. His reward, who this glory is keep in songs. I am asleep, my awake, behold, nor to the third day, breaks their makes did from a lion's. Is that they not, unless
1: decent for the, the, eaten too much when they, when to they
3: are lions, when? So this was a completely different uh, set of um, sort of rules that we set ourselves.
1: Right, so it's dedicated to François Le Lyonnais and in, in Le Lionnet's name is the word lion. And there is this kind of leonine aspect to the poem that we wanted to bring out in our bestiary.
3: So first of all, that's where, why we chose a bestiary um, as a theme. Second of all, uh, that's why we chose to dedicate it to the poet Leon Felipe, another poet with a lionine name.
1: Um, so, yeah, so to to approach this, what we did was we found T.H. Uh, White's 1954 Book of Beasts. It's, it's a translation of A Medieval Bestiary,
3: and we went to the lion section of the bestiary. Yes, and so uh, like um, uh, Brafort's original poem has nine words per line, um, so we decided to keep that, and then um, we deleted... Uh, no, we didn't delete. We extracted, rather, uh, the numbers of the Fibonacci series. The word, we counted the words in the Fibonacci series. So one, one, two, three, three five, five, eight, eight. etc., cetera. Um, and those were the only words we could use to write our own poem. So in every line,
1: each word is the first word, sec- second word. like they, they correspond
3: within the text to the numbers of the Fibonacci series. Yes, and then, you know, there's certain things. This is an example where the translation is a choice and it becomes an an interpretation and just a complete, um, you know, you have to choose one thing over another. The first line was a good example of this. In French, we had un un mot pour un modèle, and that is a homophonic pun with model, and therefore at the end he's talking about you know Elise who's starving in anorexia at Gallimard's so but it also means a word a word from her right so we we decided to go with model but you're missing the word from her part.
1: Odel. right. And another thing that we should mention is the last line, Leonardo is Fibonacci, that refers to Fibonacci's other name, which is Leonardo of Pisa. So it's a direct reference to Fibonacci within the original text that inspired us to go through the Fibonacci series within this medieval bestiary. Perhaps that's all we should say for now, and we would be happy to talk more sure. about this process during and the Q&A. answer questions, yes. Thank yes, you. Thank you. So the the final presentation uh, will include Kate Durbin. She is the author of the poetry book, The Ravenous Audience, from Akashic Books, and the chapbook, Fragments Found in a 1937 Aviator's Boot from Dancing Girl Press. She has another chapbook, Kept Women, forthcoming from Insert Press
4: as part of the Parrot series. Hello. So the project that Amaranth and I are working on is called Excess Exhibit. And it really does have to be experienced, I think, to fully be understood, but I want to just begin by giving you guys a a summary that we've written up of the project before we dive into it. Um, So, the book actually has illustrations by visual artist Zach Klein. And when we first started working on it, we really wanted to write about um, kind of a Abstract concept of overabundance. So, overabundance of sound, of self, of sense. Um, But we had no idea that in doing so, an ecstatic crossbreed would emerge, uh, both prophetic and post human. So, these poems, which um, we actually wrote them separately and then conjoined them, so they have been crossbred literally. Um, are about glorious mutation as well as the nature of collaboration itself. Um, They're very ornate and visceral. They grow one into the other, literally on the page, um, but also phonetically, recombining in ever more rapturous and kinky ways until the helix of language and image spins out of control. Um, And then the illustrations and text act as a flip book when the reader thumbs through the book.
1: So there are a few different stages of translation in this project, which is a collaboration that wouldn't necessarily sound translational. But what we were dealing with was, in in the beginning anyway, a form of ekphrasis, translating image into text. We selected about 20 images that we both really loved that had these themes of excess, of hairiness, a lot of ears because I wanted to be working sound into it. And we wanted to take those as jumping off points to create work, not literal like phrases of the images, but rather um, inspiration Mm -hmm. by the themes that are represented in
4: these images. And a lot of the images were paintings or sculptures um, that I think we considered to be excessively beautiful, like so much beauty that you almost wanted to swoon when you were looking at it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we wanted to do that, translate that into language exactly and
1: part of the reason that Kate and I wanted to collaborate with one another is that we're really very different poets as you can see Kate is very much a performer and her work has these wonderful elements of the erotic that I really
4: wanted to get a chance to
1: play with
4: and Amaranth is a very beautiful language poet Um, and I wanted to kind of um, learn from her and I also thought that the beautiful sort of conjoining of the ecstatic language and the sexual language with um, language itself, the ecstasy of language itself, could produce something really amazing.
1: Yeah, so it's been a a, a chance for us to, to do a form of translation in which we learn to speak one another's language. And in the process of these initial poems that were written separately and then interlineated, we were trying on one another's language, so to speak. And as we went through the revision process, That voice changed a lot. We ended up paring away a lot of the extra language and creating this kind of third voice that emerges from the text. And she becomes the speaker of these poems.
4: Yes, and we see her as um, almost a persona um, or kind of a post-human being that is like a hive mind conjoined. And we've actually, in performance, Um, when we perform the poems, as well as each time the poems are published, we take a series of photographs um, that themselves are mutations of this being who, in a sense, is almost wearing and becoming the poems themselves, as well as the being that speaks them into life.
1: Right. She's a conjoined version of the two of us, and yet far beyond the two of us. Um, So each time we are conjoining ourselves, our aesthetics... And And mutating and evolving. And we don't even know where it will go next. Yes. And in addition, would you say a little more about the visual part of the text? Zach's part?
4: Um, Yeah. So my husband, Zach Klein, is a visual artist. And we actually gave him the poems and had him do a drawing. That So he never saw the original images that we were using for inspiration. He just created drawings based on the poems. Um, But he did an animation. So the text eventually, when it's a book, will be a flip book. So the animation grows and the poems will also grow and they will mutate and merge together. Um, So this is the, the next step of the translation, from
1: image to word, back to image.
4: Yes. And again, I just want to emphasize that it's really an experiential thing. So we're sitting here talking to you about it, but it's really something that it's almost like an orgy in a sense, like everyone needs to join in excess exhibit and, you know, you can create something too and be a part of it. Um, and so even talking about it feels a little strange because it really is something that you just need to dive in. Or... And often when we read, we do kind of more of a stance where we're more conjoined, but we're not doing that today. Whirling capital. Architectural miniatures tucked in a twister.
5: Hillside city a swirl, whitewash. Buttress bouffant. Style
4: lines twine between abodes. Beneath
5: this upswept nidus, a studied ennui to lapse. To prop, apropos Breton or bonnet, verdant villas turret. Astride a damask fauteuil to nidnod, A green velvet bow in our glory bower to nestle. Weave through a ribbon of familiars. To hold total spiral. Spritz all houses on the bluff. Snatch thatch. Amidst an arbor vortex. Vertical blush. A spoon and stirring. stirring. Whirling capital. Embarking. Architectural. Embellishment, embellishment. Miniatures tucked in. Waves mount. A twister. A frigate of. Hillside. Poof. City. A freshet. A swirl. Two. Whitewash. Pompadour. To frolic foundations. Buttress. In powder party. Buffant. Style lines twine To buoy Between abodes Down Beneath The muff of This upswept nidus A studied Circumstance A rough to oar Ennui to lapse To swan Prop Amid Apropos Breton Star Or bonnet sauce Verdant Seas Villis turret astride. dons a grete of bunting. A damask fauteuil. To wig. To nid nod. Brisk feathers low. A green velvet bow in our. Unruly. Glory bower. Breeze. To nestle. Weave through a. Commode of cannons. Ribbon. Cascade. Of familiar. To hold total. Pretty. Spiral. Please. Spritz all houses on the bluff. Skirt o' oh mermaid up. Snatch that. Mast. With this, amidst an arbor vortex, nautilus pompon, vertical blush, fluff bodkin swash turned, a swoon and froth stirring. Embarking embellishment waves mount, a frigate of poof, a freshet to pompadour, to frolic foundations in powder party. To buoy down the muff of circumstance, a rough to oar to swan amid star-sauced seas. Dawn's egret of bunting to wig frisk feathers low, unruly breeze. Commode of cannons cascade, to pretty please, oh mermaid skirt up mast with this Nautilus pompon, fluff bodkin swash turned, fur a f
2: ing.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So we'd like to open it up to questions, if anyone would like to ask a question of one of the presenters. Please, please do. Yes? Um, I guess this can be to anyone who wants to answer
2: it, but um, I'm curious on the difference between translation, transversion, and inspired by. Mm-hmm. When does a translation become a transversion? When do you go too far to call it a translation? And I'm thinking, I translate Lithuanian poetry,
4: and I sometimes have to take some liberty I've been inspired by Paul salon's translations into German from English, and he takes a lot of liberty
2: somehow. He makes it work because so he's a genius, but I'm wondering what can be said about these differences and when you go too far. Yeah, it seems like
1: Gabi, would you like to talk to that? Maybe about Ralph and and Joris and
3: well it What we took as inspiration for the transversions was the notion of transcrição, the Brazilian, you know, which is definitely a departure from the original into a new creation. So it's not sticking. So the more the it takes a lot of liberties. And we were thinking also of Jerome Rothenberg's writing through, which also takes a lot of liberties. Um, So. And this is why we called it uh, transversions. So we, you know, we couldn't, uh, right in our right minds, uh, call it a translation. Um, But I don't think that any translation is ever uh, quite faithful. I think that every translation is always already a version or perversion of. The original, um, and it has to take, you know, its liberties, and it has to be an adaptation. Otherwise, I don't think it's a successful, you know, those very stunted translations that really try to stay as close as possible miss so much more of the essence, to me, of what it is. So I think, yes, there is definitely a faraway departure, which is a transversion for us, which we couldn't call a translation. And then there's a translation which is also already a departure, just not so distant. I would say.
2: Mary, did you want to talk to that at all? Um, I guess, in my mind, it kind of depends on how you present what you're doing. In other words, uh, like, you can think of the Zukovsky's homophonic translations of Catullus, that they were, in, a, in essence, taking a lot of liberties with meaning, but staying very true to sound. And they presented it as such, as translations, not as their own poetry. Um, and so, you know, really, I think it really depends on on how you're presenting your project. You can also think of Lowell's imitations as another version of how to present what some would call translation, what some wouldn't. Any additional questions that we could address? Yes.
1: I'm wondering was it
3: originally
0: faithful to that yeah absolutely I think that um, you know we hear a lot about poetry's relationship to music but I actually think that poetry is part visual art because what it has available to it that prose um, perhaps I guess chooses not to avail itself of is the potential to manipulate the visual space on the page so um, the visual elements of the poems are incredibly important to me um, and that was a process. I mean, the whole thing, um, the meat out of the eater as it exists in the text is much longer. There are lots of many other series of poems, so we had to initially, like, make a cut. Um, and once that cut was made, then there was a lot of attention to um, trying to um, retain the visual affect of the page. But, of course, like a moving, dynamic visual field is quite, is quite different, Right especially since it has music and things like that. But yeah, yeah, definitely important.
4: Well, we're kind of in the process of figuring out space right now, and it's extremely tricky because we want the poems and the visuals to be as equally glorious. Um, And his images are so beautiful that we're really struggling right now with making the poems on the page look that good and have enough space and be big enough Um, so I would say that that's I guess our challenge right now and our ultimate goal Um, and I would totally agree with what Laura said about um, it is visual art I don't know why some people think it's not but I know a lot of text-based visual artists too and they don't consider themselves to be poets so yeah very important
1: Especially since it's a thematic part of our work, the idea of mutation and conjoinment, that these lines began as conjoined interlineations, but really that wasn't enough of a conjoinment. That was, you know, that's sort of false. To actually get them to merge with one another, we want them on the page to actually mimic this act of coming together. And the the poem that we read where we were sort of taking turns, in those cases, some of those words come from the poem on the page before, and some come from the the poem on the next page. So we have this intermediary poem that emerges out of the two other poems that we've written by merging the language. And that has been a process for us, too, figuring out how to do that, how to make that work.
4: Yeah, they're literally mutating and evolving into each other in an overlapping sense and creating new poems.
1: Any other questions? Thank you very much for coming. It was a pleasure to speak with you and read for you. And it means a lot that you came, so thank
4: you. Thank you, Amaranth, for putting putting this together.
1: My pleasure.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune in to our website at www.awpwriter.org.